0: Chapter 6 of the Galaxy Primes by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Galaxy Primes, Chapter 6. Since the tests took much time and were strictly routine in nature, there is no need to go into them in detail. At their conclusion, Garlock said, First, either Jim alone or Lola alone, or Jim and Lola together, can hit any destination within any galaxy, but can't go from one galaxy to another. Second, either Bell or I, or any combination containing either of us without the other, has no control at all. Third, Bell and I together, or any combination containing both of us, can go intergalactic under control. In spite of confession being supposed to be good for the soul, I don't like to admit that we've put gravel in the gearbox. Do you, Bell? Garlock's smile was both rueful and forced. You can play that in spades. Bell licked her lips. For the first time since boarding the starship, she was acutely embarrassed. We'll have to, of course. It was all my fault. It makes me look like a damn stupid juvenile delinquent not by nineteen thousand kilocycles, since neither of us had any idea. I'll be glad to settle for half the blame." "'Will you please stop talking Sanskrit?' James asked. "'Or lep it, so we two innocent bystanders can understand it?' "'Will do,' and Garlock went on in thought. Remember what I said about this drive not being conditioned to anything? I was wrong. Bell and I have conditioned it, but badly. We've been fighting so much that something or other in that mess down there has become conditioned to her, something else to me. My part will play along with anyone except Belle, hers with anybody except me. Anti-conditioning, you might call it. Anyway they lay back their ears and balk." Oh, hell! James snorted. Talk about gobbledygook! You are still saying that that conglomeration of copper and silver and steel and insulation that we built ourselves has got intelligence, and I still won't buy it!" By no means. Remember, Jim, that this concept of mechanical teleportation, and that the mind is the only possible controller, are absolutely new. We've got to throw out all previous ideas and start new from scratch. I postulate, as a working hypothesis drawn from original data as modified by these tests, that that particular conglomeration of materials generates at least two fields about the properties of which we know nothing at all. That one of those properties is the tendency to become preferentially resonant with one mind and preferentially non-resonant with another. Clear so far? As mud! It's a mighty tough blueprint to read. James scowled in thought. However, it's no harder to swallow than Sanderson's theory of teleportation—or, for that matter, the actual basic coupling between mind and ordinary muscular action. Does that mean we'll have to rebuild half a million credits worth of—no, you and Bell can work it together. I don't know, Garlock paced the floor. I simply can't see any possible mechanism of coupling. Subconscious, perhaps? Bell suggested. For my money, that whole concept is invalid, Garlock said. It merely changes I don't know to I can't know, and I don't want any part of that. However, unconscious could be the answer. If so, we may have a lever. Bell, are you willing to bury your hatchet for about five minutes, work with me like a partner ought to? I certainly am, Clee, honestly. Screens down flat, if you say so." "'Halfways enough, I think. You'll know when we get down there.' Her mind joined his, and he went on. "'Ignore the machines themselves completely. Consider only the fields. Feel around with me. Keep tuned. See if there's anything at all here that we can grab hold of and manipulate. Like an op-field, except probably very much finer. I'll be completely damned if I can see how this type of Gunther generator can put out a manipulable field, but it must. That's the only ouch. This last was a yell of pure mental agony. Both hands flew to his head, his face turned white, sweat poured and he slumped down unconscious. He came to, however, as the other three were stretching him out on a Davenport. Bell was mopping his face with a handkerchief. What happened, Clee? all three were exclaiming at once. I found my manipulable field, but a bomb went off in my brain when I straightened it out. He searched his mind anxiously, then smiled. But no damage done, just the opposite. It opened up a Gunther cell I didn't know I had. Didn't it sock you too, Belle? Ah, uh-uh, she said more than half bitterly. I must not have one. That makes you a super-prime, if I may name a new classification." Nonsense! Of course you've got it! Unconscious, of course, like me, but without it you couldn't have conditioned the field. But why? Oh, what bit me was the one condition to me? Oh, nice! Bell exclaimed. Come on, Clee, let's go get mine! Do you want a bit of knowledge that badly, Bell? Lola asked. Besides, wait, he isn't strong enough yet." Of course he's strong enough. A little knock like that? Want it? I'd give my right leg and—and almost anything for it. It didn't kill him, so it won't kill me. There may be an easier way, Garlock said. I wouldn't wish a jolt like that onto my worst enemy. But that had two hundred kilovolts and four hundred kilogunts behind it. Since I know now where and what the cell is, I think I can open it up for you without being quite so rough. Oh, lovely, come in quick, I'm ready now." Garlock went in, and wrought. It took longer, half an hour, in fact, but it was very much easier to take. What did it feel like, Bell? Lola asked eagerly. You winced like he was drilling teeth and struck a couple of nerves. Uh-uh more like being stretched all out of shape, like having a child, maybe, in a small way. Let's go, Clee." They joined up and went. "'Ha! There you are, you cantankerous little fabrication of nothings,' Bell said aloud in a low, throaty, gloating voice. "'Take that, and that, and now behave yourself. If you don't, mamma spank, but good!' Then breaking connection. Thanks a million, Clee. You're tall, solid gold. Do you want to run some more tests to see which of us is the intergalactic transporter? Not unless you do. Who, me? I'll be tickled to death not to, just like I'd swallowed an ostrich feather. Back to us then? Tell us here we come, Garlock said. Jim, what are the Tellurian figures for exactly five hundred miles up? I'll punch em. Got 'em in my head. James did so. Shall Brownie and I set our blocks? No, Bell said. Nothing can interfere with us now. Ready? Garlock sat down in the pilot's seat. Cluster round, chum. Bell leaned against the back of the chair and put both arms around Garlock's neck. I'm clustered. The spot we're shooting at is exactly over the exact center of the middle blast pit at Port Gunther. In to a skillionth of a willionth of a microphase, I'm exactly on and locked. Shoot. Now, you sheet iron bucket of nuts and bolts, jump! And Garlock snapped the red switch. Earth lay beneath them, so did Port Gunther. <sighs> Garlock's huge sigh held much more of relief than of triumph. They did it! We're home! Lola shrieked, and breaking into unashamed and unrestrained tears, went into her husband's extended arms. Cry ahead, sweet. I'd ball myself if Garlock wasn't looking. Maybe I will anyway, James said. Then, extending his right arm to Garlock and to Bell, I was scared to death you couldn't make it except by backtracking. Good going, you two primes. But his thoughts said vastly more than his words. Bell's eyes, too, were wet, Garlock's own were not quite dry. "'You weren't as sure as you looked, then, that we could do it the hard way,' Bell said. All inside, I was one quivering mass of jelly. "'Afterward, you mean. You were solid as Gibraltar when I fired the charge. You're the kind of woman a man wants with him when the going's tough. Slide around here a little, so I can get hold of you.' Garlock released Bell, finally, and turned to the pilot, who was just pulling a data sheet from Compey the computer. How far did we miss target, Jim? James held up his right hand, thumb and forefinger forming a circle. You're one point eight seven inches high and off-center point 0.53 inches to the north-northeast by east. I hereby award each of you the bronze medal of marksman first. Shall I take her down now, or do you want to check in from here first? Neither, I think. What do you think, Bell? Right. Not until... you know what. Check. Until we decide whether or not to let them know just yet that we can handle the ship. If we do, how many of our taped reports we turn in and how many we toss down the chute. I get it!" James exclaimed with a spreading grin. That, my dear people, is something I never expected to live long enough to see, our straight-laced Dr. Garlock applying the bugger factor to a research problem." I preferred the term Monk's coefficient myself, Garlock said, from the standpoint of mathematical rigor. At Polytech we called it Finagle's formula, Bell commented, the most widely applicable operator known. Have you three lost your minds?" Lola demanded. That's nothing to joke about! You wouldn't destroy official reports! All that astronomy and anthropology that nobody ever even dreamed of before! You couldn't! Not possibly! Each of us knows just as well as you do how much data we have, exactly how new and startling it is, but we've thought ahead farther than you have. None of us likes the idea of destroying it a bit better than you do. We won't either, without your full, unreserved, wholehearted consent, nor without your fixed, ironclad, unshakable determination never to reveal any least bit of it." That language is far too strong for me. I'd like to be able to go along with you, but on those terms I simply can't. I think you can, when you've thought it through. You've met Alonzo P. Ferber, haven't you? Read him?" One glimpse! That was all I could stand. He pawed me mentally and wanted to paw me physically the first time I ever saw him. Check. So I'm going to ask you two questions, which you may answer as an anthropologist, as Lola Montandon, as Mrs. James 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 the Ninth, as a member of our team, or as any other character you choose to assume. Remembering that Ferber's a Gunther first, and pretends to be an operator whenever he can get away with it, should he, or anyone like him, ever be allowed to visit Hodel? Second question. If there is any possible way for him to get there, can he be made to stay away? Oh! Grand Lady Neldene, and that perfectly stunning Grand Lady Lemphie they picked out for Jim! They're such nice people! And the Gunther jeans! As Lola thought on, her expressive face showed a variety of conflicting emotions before it hardened into a decision. The answer to both questions, the only possible answer, is no. I subscribe, on the exact terms you stipulated. And you don't believe, Clee, that my thesis had anything to do with my holding out at first? Certainly I don't. Besides... What thesis? Bell asked for my Ph.D. in Anthropology. I thought I had it made, but it just went down the chute. And I don't know if any of you realize just how nearly impossible it is to make a really worthwhile original contribution to science in that field." "'As I started to tell you, Brownie,' Garlock said, "'I don't think you've lost a thing. There's a bigger and better one coming up.' "'What?' "'Shh!' Bell Stage whispered. "'He's got a theory! Such a weirdy that he won't talk about it to anybody." It isn't a theory yet, at least not ripe enough to pick, but it's something more than a hunch," Garlock said. But what could possibly make as good a thesis as those extra-galactic tapes? Lola wailed. They would have made my thesis a summer breeze! More like a hurricane, the hottest thing since doctorate disputations first started," Garlock said. However, as I started to say twice before, it still will be. Intragalactic tapes will be just as good, in this case, better." Well, possibly, but we haven't any. That is what this conference is about. We can't destroy the stuff we have unless we can replace it with something better. My idea is that we should visit a few, say 50 tellus telus-type planets in this galaxy the ones closest to Tellus. I'm pretty sure they'll be inhabited by Homo sapiens. There's a chance, of course, that they'll be like Hodell and the others we've seen, in which case I don't see how we can keep Gunther genes confined to Earth. However, I'm pretty sure in my own mind that we'll find them all very much like Tellus, Gunther and all." What would you think of that for a thesis, Lola? Oh, wonderful! Okay. Now to get back to whether we want to check in or not, I don't like to duck out without letting them know we can handle this heap, after a fashion, that is. They don't need to know we can really handle it. But we've got nothing we can report and Fatso will blow his stack. Uh-oh! Should have remembered Tellus isn't Hodel. The tri-dye setting up. Bell, you take it. She'd give me Fatso because he wants to chew me out, but she won't put him on for you. Cut her throat, but good. Brownie, hide somewhere. Jim, set up for Beta Centauri. Not Alpha, but Beta, and fast. Give her hell, Bell." Garlock sent his last thought from behind a Davenport, from which hiding-place he could see the tri-dye screen and both Bell and James, but anyone on the screen could not see him. Miss Foster's likeness appeared upon the screen. Chancellor Ferber's secretary was a big woman, but not fat, middle-aged, gray-haired, wearing consciously the aura and the domineering, overbearing expression of a woman who has great power and an even greater drive to exert her authority. Why haven't you reported in? Miss Foster snapped with a glare that was pure frost. You arrived thirteen minutes ago. Such delay is inexcusable. Get Garlock. Captain Garlock is off watch, asleep. I, Commander Bellamy, am in command!" Standing stiffly at attention, Bell paused to exchange glares with the woman across the big desk. If Miss Foster's was Frost, Captain Bellamy's was Helium Ice. "'Ready to go, Jim?' Bell flashed the thought. "'Half a minute yet. Any time after I sign off. Pick your own spot.' Then aloud into the screen. I will report to Chancellor Ferber, I will not report to Chancellor Ferber's secretary." "'Doctor James!' Miss Foster's voice was neither as cold nor as steady as it had been. "'Bring that ship down at once!' James made no sign that he had heard the order. Bell stood changelessly stiff. She had not for an instant taken her coldly competent eyes from those of the woman on the ground. Her emotionless, ultra-refrigerated voice went, as ever, directly into the screen. I trust that this conversation is being recorded? It certainly is. Good. I want it on record that we, the personnel of the starship Pleiades, are not subject to the verbal orders of the Chancellor's secretary. You will now connect me with Chancellor Ferber, please. The Chancellor is in conference and is not to be disturbed. I have authority to act for him. You will report to me and do it right now!" Foster's voice rose almost to a scream. "'That ground has been covered. Since you have taken it upon yourself to exceed your authority, to such an extent as to refuse to connect the officer in command of the Pleiades with the Chancellor, I cannot report to him either the reasons why we are not landing at this time or when we expect to return to Tellus. You are advised that we may leave at any instant, just like that." Bell snapped her finger under the imaged nose. "'You may inform the Chancellor, or not inform him if you prefer, that our control of the starship Pleiades is something less than perfect. I do not know exactly how many seconds longer we will be here. Commander Bellamy signing off. Over and out.' "'Commander Bellamy, indeed! Commander my left foot!' Miss Foster was screaming now, in thwarted fury. You're no more a commander than my lowest office-girl is! Just wait till you get down here, you green-haired hussy, you shameless notor— The set went instantaneously from full volume to zero sound as Jim drove the red button home. Bell, you honey! Garlock scrambled out from behind the Davenport, seized her around the waist, and swung her, feet high in air, through four full circles before he let her down and kissed her vigorously. You little sweetheart! You're the first living human being ever to really pull Foster's cork! What a goat-getting! James applauded. That will go down in history as the star-spangled act of the century! Bell was, however, unusually diffident. I stuck my neck out a mile. Worse, Clee's. I'm sorry, Clee. I had to have some weight to throw around and I only had a second to think, and that was the first thing I thought of, and after half a minute she made me so damn mad that I went entirely too far. Uh-uh, just far enough. That was a perfect job. But she'll never forget that. And she'll crucify you, as well as me, when we land. She knows I'm not a commander. She just thinks you ain't. The official log will show, though, that after only one day out I discovered that we should all be officers, one captain and three commanders, with pay and perquisites of rank. I'll thick up good and sufficient reasons for it between now and when I make up the log. But you can't! Or can you, really? Well, nobody told me I couldn't, so I assumed the right. Besides, you didn't tell her commander of what, so I'll make it stick, too, see if I don't. Or else I'll tear two or three offices apart finding out why I can't. You can be sure of that." All that may not be necessary, Lola said. That tape will never be heard. I'll bet she's erased it already. Perhaps, but ours isn't going to be erased. It will be heard exactly where it will do the most good." I'm awfully glad you don't think we're on the hook. All that's left, then, is that second-in-command business. Both of you know, of course, that that was just window dressing. You were telling the truth and didn't know it, James said, cheerfully. You have actually been second-in-command ever since the drive tests. I haven't, and I won't. Surely you don't think I'm enough of a heel, Jim, to step on your toes like that! Nothing like that involved. You tell her, Clee. Gunther ability is what counts. You're a prime, Jim's an operator. So now that we can handle the heap, you'll have to be second in command whether you like it or not. Any time you can out-Gunther me, we'll trade places. And you won't have to take the job away from me, I'll give it to you. But. No hard feelings, Jim? No reservations? Screens down?" "'None whatever. In fact, I'm relieved. I'm guttered for this board here. For that one, I'm not. Come in and look, and shake on it!' Bell looked, and while they were shaking hands she flashed a thought at Lola. "'Do you know that we've got two of the finest men that ever lived?' "'I've known that for a long time,' Lola flashed back. But you've hardly started to realize what they really are." Well, shall we start earning our pay and perquisites by getting to work on this planet that we haven't even looked? Wait a minute. We're just about to open up the galaxy, aren't we? They were. Then there'll have to be some kind of a unifying and correlating authority, a galactic council or something, and the quicker it's set up the better, the less confusion and turmoil and jockeying for position there will be. Question. Should this authority be political? It should not, James declared. It takes United Worlds seven solid days of debate to decide whether or not to buy one lead pencil. Military or naval, I suppose it'd be. That's what Clee's driving at, Bell said. You're wonderful, Clee, simply priceless. We're officers of the brand new Galactic Navy. Subject to civilian control, of course. But the civilians will be the United Galaxian Societies of the Galaxy, and nobody else. Beautiful Clee! There are ten operators, Jim, right?" Check. Brownie and I are here, the other eight are running the Galaxian Society under Clee, and the whole Society eats out of his hand. I don't know about that, but Bell and I together could swing it, I think. I'll say we could, Bell breathed. And I simply can't wait to see you kick Fatso's teeth in with this one!" I don't like the word Navy, Garlock said. It's tied definitely to warfare. How about calling it the Galactic Service? Applicable to either war or peace. Brass hats will think of us in terms of war, even though we will actually work for peace. Any objections? There were no objections. About the uniforms! Lola said eagerly, space-black and star-white, with chromium comets and things on the shoulders. To hell with uniforms," Garlock broke in. Why do women have to go off the deep end on clothes? She's right, you're wrong, Clee. James said. Without a uniform you won't get off the ground, not even with the Society. And you'll be talking to top-planetary brass. Also they're Gunthered Plenty. You can feel their op-field clear out here!" Could be, Garlock conceded. Okay, you girls dope it out to suit yourselves. But think you can stand it, Bell, to wear more than twelve square inches of clothes? Wait till you see it, chum. I've been designing a uniform for myself for positively years. I can't wait. And you're a captain, of course. Huh? You can't have two cap—oh, I see. Primes. I appreciate that, Clee. Thanks. Hold on, both of you, James said. You haven't thought this through far enough. Suppose we meet forces already organized. Better start high than low. You've got to be top admiral, Clee. Rocket oil. Suppose we don't find anything at all. You're right, Jim, Bell said. Clee, you talk like a man with a paper nose. It's you who's been yowling for two solid years about being ready for anything. We've got to do just that." Correction accepted. Brief me. Ranks should be different from those of United Worlds. They should be descriptive, but impressive. Tops could be Galactic Admiral—that's you. Vice-Galactic Admiral—me. Galactic Vice-Admiral would be better, Lola said. Accepted those two will make stick come hell or space warps, right?" Garlock did not reply immediately. Up to either one of two points, he agreed finally. What points? War or being out-Gunthered? Top Gunther takes top place. Man, woman, bird, beast, fish, or bug-eyed monster. Oh! Bell was staggered for a moment. No war, of course. As to the other... I hadn't thought of that. There are lots of things none of us has thought of, but as amended, I'll buy it. Then several regional admirals, each with his regional vice-admiral. Then system admirals and vices, and world or planetary, naming the planet, you know, admirals and vices. Let the various Galaxian societies take over from there down. How do you like them potatoes, Buster? Nice. The formal address intra-ship will be Mr. and Miss. Jim and Brownie?" They liked it. Where do we fit in? James asked. Pick your own spots, Garlock said. If we stick to the Solar System we aren't so apt to get bumped by primes, so make me Solar System Admiral and Brownie my vice. Okay. How long will it take you, Bell, to materialize those uniforms? Fifteen seconds longer than it takes the converter to scan us. Lola's color scheme is right, and I've got everything else down to the last curlicue of chrome. Let's go." They went, and came back into the main in uniform. Bell had really done a job. That of the men, while something on the spectacular side, was more or less conventional, with stiff visored, screened, heavily chromed caps. But the women's—slippers, overseas caps, Shorts and jackets. But what jackets?" Well, Garlock said after examining the two girls speechlessly for a good half-minute. Doesn't look exactly like a spray-on job, but if you ever take a deep breath it'll split from here to there. Fly off, leave you naked as a jaybird. Oh no, the fabric stretches a little, see? Nothing like a sweater, but a similar effect, perhaps a bit more so. Quite a bit more so, I'd say. However, since operators and primes are automatically stacked like tennic towers, I don't suppose your recruits will be unduly perturbed at, or will squawk too much about, overexposure. Are we finally ready to go down and get to work? I am, James said. How do you want to handle it? Run a search pattern. Bell and I will center their op-field and check on ops and primes. You two probe at will. Around and around the planet, in brief bursts of completely incomprehensible speed, the huge ship darted—the biggest, solidest, yet most elusive and fantastic flying saucer ever to visit that world. The tremendous oceans and six great continents were traversed—the ice caps, the frigid, the temperate and the torrid zones. Wherever she went, powerful and efficient radar scanned and tracked her. Wherever she went, excitement seethed. Beta Centauri V," Garlock reported after a few minutes. Margonia, they call it. Biggest continent and nation named Nargoda. Capital city, Margon. Margon base on coast nearby. Lots of Gunther Firsts. All the real Gunther, though, is clear across the continent. They're building a starship. Fourteen ops and two primes, man and woman. Deggy Delcamps a big bruiser, with a god-awful lot of stuff. Ugly as hell, though. He's a bossy type." I'm amazed, James played it straight. I thought all male primes would be just like you—timorous timmies. Huh? Oh! Garlock was taken slightly aback, but went on quickly. What do you think of your opposite number, Bell? He whistled a wolf call and made hourglass motions with his hands. I thought of trading you in on a new model, but Fow Talaho is no bargain either, and nobody's pushover. Trade, you tomcat! Bell's nostrils flared. You know what that bleach blonde tried to do? High hat me. I noticed. When we four get down to business, face to face, there should be some interesting by-products. You chirped it, boss! Primes seem to be such nice people!" James rolled his eyes upward and steepled his hands. "'If you've got all the dope, no use finishing this search pattern. Go ahead. Window dressing. The brass hasn't any idea of what's going on any more than ours did.' The search went on until—' "'This is it,' James reported. Where? Over Margon Base? Check. Kick us over there, ten or twelve hundred miles up. On the way, boss. Looks like your theory is about to pick. It isn't much of a theory yet, just that cultural and evolutionary pattern should be more or less homogeneous within galaxies. Until it can explain why so many out-galaxies are just alike, it doesn't amount to much. By the way, I'm glad you people insisted on organization and rank and uniforms. The brass is going to take a certain amount of convincing. Take over, Brownie. This is your dish." I was afraid of that. The others watched Lola drive her probe, a diamond-clear, razor-sharp bolt of thought that no Gunther first could possibly either wield or stop, down into the innermost private office of that immense and far-flung base. Through Lola's inner eyes they saw a tall, trim, handsome, fiftyish man in a resplendent uniform of purple and gold. They watched her brush aside that officer's hard-held mental block. I greet you, Supreme Grand Marshal Entlor, Highest Commander of the Armed Forces of Nargoda. This is the starship Pleiades of System Sol, Planet Tellus. I am Sol System Vice Admiral Lola Montandon. I have with me as guests three of my superior officers of the Galactic Service, including the Galactic Admiral himself. We are making a goodwill tour of the Telus-type planets of this region of space. I request permission to land and information as to your landing conventions. The landing pad, bottom, of the Pleiades is flat, sixty feet wide by one hundred twenty feet long. Area loading is approximately eight tons per square foot. Solid, dry ground is perfectly satisfactory while we land vertically with little or no shock impact. I prefer not to risk damaging your pavement. They all felt the marshal's thoughts race, starship tell us Sol that insignificant type G dwarf, interstellar travel, a commonplace a ship that size and weight. An organized, uniformed, functioning, galaxy-wide navy, and they don't want to damage my pavement! My God! Good going, Brownie. Kiss her for me, Jim!" Garlock flashed the thought. Intlor realizing that his every thought was being read, pulled himself together. I admit that I was shocked, Admiral Montandon. But landing—really, I have nothing to do with landings. They are handled by—I realize that, sir. But you realize that no underling could possibly authorize my landing. That is why I always start at the top. Besides, I do not like to waste time on officers of much lower rank than my own, and—Lola, allowing a strong tinge of good humor to creep into her thought—the bigger they are, the less apt they are to pass the well-known buck. "'You have had experience, I see,' the Marshal laughed. He did have a sense of humor. While landing here is forbidden, top secret, you know, would my refusal mean much to you? Having made satisfactory contact, I introduce you to Galactic Admiral Garlock. Take over, sir, please." Entlor winced, for the probe Garlock used then compared to Lola's very much as a diamond drill compares to a piece of soft brass pipe. It would mean everything to us, Garlock assured him. Our mission is a perfectly friendly one. We will have a friendly visit, or none. If you do not care for our friendship, another nation will." That wouldn't do either, of course. Antlor paused in thought. It boils down to this. I must either welcome you or destroy you. You may try. Garlock grinned in frankly, self-satisfied amusement. However, the best you can do is lithium hydride fusion missiles in the hundreds-of-megatons range. Firecrackers. Every once in a while a planet has to try a few such things on us before it will believe that we are powerful as well as friendly. Would you like to test our defenses? If so, I will neither take offense nor retaliate." Supreme Grand Marshal Entlor was floored. Why, er, not at all. I read in your mind.... He broke off, to quell an invasion into his own private office. "'Damn it! Keep still!' All four heard him yell. "'I know they ran a search-pattern. I know that, too. I know everything about it, I tell you. I'm in full rapport with their supreme Grand Admiral. There's only the one ship, they're friendly, and I'm inviting them to land here on Margon base. Give that to the press. Say also that entrance restrictions to Margon Base will not be relaxed at present. Grand Marshal Holson and Komoff Flournoy stay here and tune in. The rest of you, get out and stay out! Throw all reports about any alien vessel or flying saucer or what have you into the waste basket!" "'Resume command, please, Miss Montandon,' Garlock directed, and withdrew his probe from Entlor's mind. I thank you, Supreme Grand Marshal Entlor, for your welcome," Lola sent. I'm sorry that our visits cause so much disturbance, but I suppose it can't be helped. Our Gunther blocks are down. Would you and your two assistants like to teleport out here to us and con us down yourselves?" Lola knew instantly that they could not and covered deftly for them. But of course you can't, without knowing a focus spot here in the main. Shall I teleport you aboard?" Come off face, she was an attractive, nicely-built redhead, wearing throat-mic, earphone and recorder, turned so pale that a faint line of freckles stood out across the bridge of her nose. She very evidently wanted to scream a protest, but would not. Both men, strangely enough, were eager to go. Instantly all three were standing in line on the deep-piled rug of the main facing the four Tellurians. Seven bodies came rigidly to attention. Seven right hands snapped into two varieties of formal salute. Standing thus, each party studied the other for a couple of seconds. There was no doubt at all as to which two of the visitors the two Nargodian men were studying, but neither of them could quite make up his mind as to which of the black-and-white-clad women to study first or most. The redhead's glance, too, flickered between Bell and Garlock. Incredulous envy and equally incredulous admiration lit her eyes. "'At rest, please, fellow-officers,' Garlock said, and Lola performed the necessary introductions, adding, "'We do not, however, use titles aboard ship. Mr. and Miss are customary and sufficient.' Behind each row of officers a long Davenport appeared. Between them, a table loaded with sandwiches, olives, pickles, relishes, fruits, nuts, soft drinks, cigars and cigarettes. Help yourselves," Garlock invited. We serve neither intoxicants nor drugs, but you should find something there to your taste. Indeed we shall, and thank you," Antlor said. Is there any objection, Mr. Garlock, to Miss Flournoy transmitting information of this meeting and of this ship to our base? None whatever. Send as you please, Miss Flournoy, or as Mr. Entlor directs." I'm glad I didn't quite scare myself out of coming up here, the communications officer said. This is the biggest and nicest thrill I ever had. Such a thrill that I don't know just where to begin. She cocked an eyebrow at her commanding officer. As usual. Whatever you think should be sent. Entlor sent her a steadying thought. Then as the girl settled back with a sandwich in one hand and a tall glass of ginger ale in the other, he went on to Garlock. She is a very fine and very strong telepath, by our standards at least. By galactic standards also. Garlock had, of course, been checking. Accurate, sharp, wide range, clear thinking and fast. Not one of us four could do it any better. I thank you, Mr. Garlock the girl said with a blush of pleasure and with scarcely a perceptible pause in her work. A tour of the ship followed, and as it progressed the more confused and dismayed the two Nargodian commanders became. But no crew at all? Holson demanded incredulously. How can a thing like this possibly work? It's fully Gunthered, Lola explained. It works itself. That is, almost all the time. Whenever we land on any planet for the first time, one of us has to control it. Or for any other special job not in its memory banks. When you're ready for us to land, I'll show you. It's my turn to work. Miss Flurnoy, have they cleared the air over Pylon Six? Yes, sir. Clearance came through five minutes ago. They are holding it clear for us. Thank you. Miss Montandon? You may land at your convenience." "'Thank you, sir,' Lola took the pilot's chair. "'This is the scanner. I pull it over my face and head, so, since I am always in tune with the field—' "'What does that mean?' Laura? asked, dark foreboding in his mind. "'I was afraid of that. You can't feel an operator field. I'm sorry, sir, but that means you can't handle these forces and never will be able to. Certain Gunther areas of your brain are inoperative. On our scale you're a Gunther first. On ours I'm an Esper-10, the highest rating in the world, except for a few theoretical crackpots, who—excuse me, please, I shouldn't have said that, in view of what I see happening here. No offense taken, sir. Those who developed the Gunther Drive were crackpots until they got the first starship out into space. But, with this scanner on, I think of where I want to look and I can see it, I then think the ship a few miles sideways, so, and we are now directly over your pylon six. I'm starting down, but I won't go into free-fall." Apparent weight grew less and less, until— This is about enough for you, Miss Flurnoy? Just—the com agreed, with a gulp. One pound less, and I'm afraid I'll upchuck that lovely lunch I just ate. We're going fast enough now. Everyone sitting down? Brace yourselves, please. You'll be about fifty percent overweight for a while." As bodies settled deeper into cushions, Entlore sent Garlock a thought. We three weigh about five hundred pounds. You lifted us, instantaneously, or nearly so, but I'll pass the question of acceleration for the moment. Eleven hundred miles straight up! How did you repeal the law of conservation?" We didn't. We have fusion engines of twenty million horsepower. Our operator field, which has a radius of fifteen thousand miles and is charged to an electrogravitic potential of one hundred thousand guns, stores energy. Its action is not exactly like that of an electrical condenser or of a storage battery, but is more or less analogous to both. Thus the energy required to lift U-3 came from the field, but the amount was so small that it did not lower the potential of the field by any measurable amount. Setting this ship down—call it sixty thousand tons for a thousand miles at one gravity—will increase the field's potential by approximately one-tenth of one gunt. Have you studied paraphysics? No. It wasn't practical, eh? Garlock smiled. Then I can't make even a stab at explaining instantaneous translation to you. I'll just say that there is no acceleration involved, no time-lapse. There is no violation of the law of conservation, since departure and arrival points are equa But what I'm really interested in is that small group of high espers you mentioned. Yes, I inferred that from Miss Montandon's comments." Itlor fell silent. And Garlock watched his somber thoughts picture Margon base and his nation's capital being attacked and destroyed by a fleet of invincible and invulnerable starships like this Pleiades. You are wrong, sir," Garlock put in quietly. The Galactic Service has not had, does not and will not have, anything to do with intraplanetary affairs. We have no connection with, and no responsibility to, any world or any group of worlds. We are an arm of the United Galaxian Societies of the Galaxy. Our function is to control space. To forbid, to prevent, to rectify any interplanetary or interstellar aggression. Above all, to prevent, by means of procedures up to and including total destruction of planets if necessary any attempt whatever to form any multi-world empire." The three Nargodians gasped as one, as much at the scope of the thing as at the calmly cold certainty of ability carried by the thought. "'You are transmitting this precisely, Miss Flournoy?' Antlore asked. "'Precisely, sir, including background, fringes, connotations, and implications, just as he is giving it to us.' "'Let us assume that... Your Nargodian government decides to conquer all the other nations of your planet Margonia. Assume farther that it succeeds. We will not object. In fact, we will, as a usual thing, not even be informed of it. If then, however, your government decides that one world is not enough for it to rule, and prepares to conquer, or take aggressive action against, any other world, we will be informed and we will step in. First. Warning will be given. Second, any and all vessels dispatched on such a mission will be annihilated. Third, if the offense is continued or repeated, trial will be held before the Galactic Council and any sentence imposed will be carried out." In spite of Garlock's manner and message, both marshals were highly relieved. "'You're in plenty of time with us, sir,' Antlor said. We have just sent our first rocket to our nearer moon, that is, unless that group of... of espers gets their ship off the ground.... How far along are they? The ship itself is built, but they are having trouble with their drive. The hull is spherical and much smaller than this one. It has atomic engines, but no blasts or ion plates, but neither has this one. Exactly. They may be pretty well along. I'd like to get in touch with them as soon as possible. May I borrow a talker like Miss Flournoy for a few days? You have others, I suppose?" Yes, but I'll let you have her. It is of the essence that you have the best one available. Miss Flournoy?" Yes, sir. Besides reporting, she had been conversing busily with James and Bell. Would you like to be assigned to Mr. Garlock for the duration of his stay on Margonia? Oh, yes, sir! she replied excitedly you are so assigned take orders from him or from any designate as though i myself were issuing them thank you sir but what limits and do i transmit to and or record for you sir no limit these four galaxians are hereby granted nationwide top clearance transmit as usual whatever is permitted full reporting is not only permitted but urged Garlock said, there is nothing secret about our mission. As the Pleiades landed, if you will give us your focus spot, Mr. Entlore, we can all port to your office and save calling staff-cars. And cause a revolution? Entlore laughed. Apparently you haven't been checking outside. Afraid I haven't. I've been thinking. Take a look. I got orders from the cabinet to put guards wherever people absolutely must not go, and open everything else to the public. I hope there are enough guards to keep a lane open for us, but I wouldn't bet on it." Garlock was very glad that the military men's stiff formality had disappeared. You Galaxians took this whole planet by storm while you were still above the stratosphere! There is no need to go into detail concerning the reception and celebration. On earth, one inauguration of a president and one coronation of a monarch were each almost as well covered by broadcasters, if not as turbulently and enthusiastically prolonged. From the Pleiades they went to the administration building, where an informal reception was held, thence to the Capitol, where the reception was very formal indeed thence to the grand ballroom of the city's largest hotel, where a tremendous and long-winded banquet was served. At Garlock's request, all sixteen members of the Crackpot Group, the most active members of the Deep Space Club, had been invited to the banquet. And even though Garlock was a very busy man, his talker tuned in to each one of the sixteen, tuned them all to the Galactic Admiral and in odd moments a great deal of business was done. After being told most of the story, in tight-beamed thoughts that Kama Flurnoy could not receive, the whole group was wildly enthusiastic. They would change the name of their club forthwith to the Galaxian Society of Margonia. They laid plans for a world-wide organization which would have tremendous prestige and tremendous income. They already had a field. Garlock knew about their ship, they wanted the Pleiades to move over to it as soon as possible. Yes, Garlock thought he could do it the following day, if not, as soon as he could. The Pleiades had landed at ten o'clock in the forenoon, local time. The banquet did not come to an end until long after midnight. Throughout all this time the four Galaxians carried on, without a slip, the act that all this was to them old stuff. It was just a little before daylight when they returned, exhausted, to the ship. Kama Flurnoy went with them. She was still agog at the wonder of it all, as Bell and Brownie showed her to her quarters. End of chapter 6